This is KJZZ News, your listener-supported public radio station. I'm Tiara Vian, and here are this week's stories you don't want to miss. Thanks so much for listening. For the week of November 7th, 2022, here are some top stories. First off, here's an election update, but some results may have changed, so please check out the full election coverage at kjzz.org. Here's a glimpse of the biggest state races with Mark Brody, Lauren Gilger, and political editor Ben Giles. Several high-profile and closely-watched races in Arizona are still too close to call with ballots still being counted. And it could be a few days before we know the results of at least some of these contests. With us to talk about where we stand now and what to expect in the days and maybe weeks to come is KJZZ's Ben Giles. Hey there, Ben. Hey, Mark. So let's go through some of what we know so far. A lot of votes have been counted. And in some of the sort of high-profile races, uh, we saw leads that Democrats had accumulated last night generally shrinking overnight. Yeah, for example, Katie Hobbs, the Democrat running for governor, her high watermark last night was about 180,000 votes. That was her lead at one point over the Republican nominee, Carrie Lake. That shrunk to 30,000 votes when I woke up this morning. And just about an hour ago, it shrunk even further to 12,000 votes. She leads by just about half a percentage point right now. And that's an indication of the voting patterns that we were expecting to see. Democrats voting early, Republicans waiting until Election Day to, to cast their votes. So we're starting to see Republicans chip away bit by bit at some of these Democratic leads. So among some of the other leads, Mark Kelly still in the lead by about 90,000 votes. Uh, you mentioned Katie Hobbs. Uh, Adrian Fontes is leading Mark Fincham by about 84,000 votes. Chris Mays leading by about 4,000 votes in the race for AG against Abe Hamaday. So as you say, like these races are really, really tightening, which is mostly what people expected. Yeah. And one, for instance, we've already seen a Republican overtake a Democrat's early lead. Republican Republican Tom Horn, he's the former attorney general, also the former superintendent of public instruction running for that office again. He has a slim, I think, about a thousand vote lead over the incumbent Democrat, Kathy Hoffman. Um, that is what Republicans are hoping to see in several other statewide races for them to to retake or, or overcome those early Democratic leads. So then, Ben, let's talk about what could come next. What votes are left to be counted? It's a lot already counted, right? Right. So we're still waiting to hear exactly how many outstanding ballots there are. Bill Gates, the chairman of the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors, was on CNN this morning, and he gave a rough estimate just for Maricopa County of about 300,000 outstanding ballots. And what those are is late early ballots, ballots that were turned in, mail-in ballots that were turned in Saturday, Sunday, Monday, or even Tuesday, election day. Mm. Those still need to be processed. They need to be signature verified and then tabulated. That means counted. So this could be some time. Any sense of where those votes might be coming from if they lean Republican like the ones coming in late yesterday did or if they're going to be a little bit of a mix? We're not sure yet. It, it, that that. That could be the deciding factor, though. The mm. election day votes, people who showed up in person, those certainly favored Republicans. But people holding on to their ballots at the last minute, you know, historically, those have favored Democrats. But were Democrats maybe motivated to vote early this year because they you know, felt very strongly about the candidates? They felt very poorly about the Republican opponents of their preferred candidates. Um, we'll have to see how many Democrats hung on to their ballots and, and if that can help 
uh, impede some of the gains that Republicans have made with Election Day votes. Ben, what are you hearing from folks on the Democratic and Republican sides? I mean, it seemed like based on Lauren's reporting last night, there was maybe cautious optimism among Democrats that they had built big enough leads to withstand the Republicans chipping away on Election Day. Uh, as you referenced, we saw Tom Horn already overtake uh, Kathy Hoffman in that race. Do Republicans still seem confident that their candidates will will take over here? In at least a couple of statewide races, I think cautious optimism is probably a good way to describe Republicans as well. Mm-hmm. They weren't thrilled with some of the sizes of the Democrats' early leads last night. But as we've seen, uh, Tom Horn, one Republican, overtook an early lead from a Democrat. This race for governor, 12,000 votes, that would probably be within the margin for a recount. That's how close that race might turn out to be. The two Democrats who are probably in the most comfortable position this morning, leading by 80 or 90,000 votes, are Adrian Fontes for Secretary of State. He's running against an election-denying Republican Mark Fincham and U.S. Senator Mark Kelly running against the Trump-backed Blake Masters. So you were at the Republican headquarters last night, the the party that probably had to wait in lots of ways, Ben. Um, and, and I know you kind of were penned in in the back, but tell us, you know, what that was like given the early results and, and who came out to speak. Carrie Lake did come out to speak in the end. What did she have to say? So Carrie Lake came out in a kind of defiant way. She immediately attacked the fake news in the back of the ballroom. That was me. Um, (laughs) Just uh, for, she said, asking her to concede the race so early. No one was asking her to concede anything at that point. But what she did point out is in the GOP primary, it did appear that her opponent, Karen Taylor Robeson, was winning that vote early in the night and Carrie Lake overtook that lead over time in the next day. Um, So she was just trying to encourage her supporters who were probably looking at the results and not being very happy, just encourage them, hey, we're going to make a comeback and we're seeing that comeback happen in real time. So as you referenced, Ben, we don't know exactly how many ballots are left. We'll have a sense in Maricopa County, at least. We should have a sense in some of the other counties as the day goes on. Any sense of how long it might take to at least get the results, never mind recounts or anything like that, but are we talking days? Are we talking a week or or more? I think we're at least talking days. Maricopa County officials last week were saying they should have 95 to 99 percent of all ballots counted by Friday. And it's just a matter of how close are the races? And, you know, with 99 percent of the ballots counted, is the race still so close that you can't call it? That's what we'll be looking for. And some of these margins do appear to be that close. And there are a number of of ballot measures, for example, some legislative races that are also extremely close, also potentially heading into uh, recount territory. Yeah, we're trying to see if maybe the Democrats can actually uh, achieve their longstanding goal of picking up uh, enough seats in one of the chambers, perhaps the state Senate, to not take control of the chamber, but to tie it 15-15. And that would uh, presumably bring about some power sharing agreement. There were two popular ballot initiatives that have been called uh, an anti-dark money initiative to try to shed more light on some anonymous campaign spending, as well as a medical debt ballot initiative that were already called by the AP. But this close race, the the closeness of these races on the top of the ticket, it's reflected down the ballot as well, even with ballot measures and some legislative races. All right. Plenty more to come on all of this. That is KJZZ's Ben Giles. Ben, thank you. Get some rest. Thank you both. In education news. 
Polls opened for one of the most important election days in state history. Many Arizonans cast their ballots early by mail or by dropping them off. But what about those who can't yet vote? Phil Latzman recently visited a local high school government class to hear how voters of the future are viewing the election with the guidance of an experienced educator. For the past 26 years, Lane Waddell has taught a government class at Mountain Point High School in Ahwatukee. Is it fair to say you love what you do? Uh, sure. <laughs> we can, oh, wait, we can edit this out, right? <laughs> Waddell's class has never been more timely. It's hard to figure out what to actually talk about because there's A, there's so much, and B, some people don't want you to talk about so much. So I try to leave it up to the kids. But I do pick some things, like the other day we talked about the affirmative action cases in front of the Supreme Court because that impacts them. and They're all getting ready to go to college. There are certain issues that his high school students understandably can't relate to just yet. They haven't done much. You know, they've lived at home. They haven't had to pay a lot of taxes. They haven't had jobs. They haven't had a family, you know. So a lot of these things really don't apply to us. When we talk about these issues, sometimes they just look at me like, what are you talking about? Only about one in 10 of the juniors and seniors in his advanced placement government class can actually vote. That's a source of frustration for students Eli Sells, Connor Murray, and Zane Turner. As kids, we don't really get, you know, listened to for politics and stuff like that because, you know, we're kids, we can't vote. I feel like not having a direct voice in the way our country is run is it's kind of disheartening at times. I don't feel like I'm heard. I really wish I could vote because it's almost like an agonizing feeling to have so many opinions that you want to be able to share with the world and have an impact on the way the country is ran, yet you can't because of your age. Not the case for 18-year-old Ramsey McNeil, who actually can have her voice heard at the ballot box this election. I do have kind of a special responsibility, I guess, in that way, because going to class, hearing my classmates talk about their feelings, seeing what they want done, it's almost in a position where I want to carry on how much passion they have into the voting stands, and I want to be able to represent my peers as best I can. So one of the biggest issues for high schoolers, well, it might not be a surprise to know that education funding is at the top of the list for many of them. Funding in a lot of aspects, if it comes to substitute teachers, maybe a sub is juggling quite a few classes at the same time. Maybe one of my teachers isn't getting the right pay and he's been teaching for a long time and he won't be able to do this next year. You know, it's a lot of hard issues that come in with the environments that I see every day. For April Conyers, it's another related issue, as well as income inequality. College tuition, like scholarships are definitely a huge help, but I've been looking at like the cost of going out of state, and it's it's really insane, I think. And uh, med like medical care and stuff without insurance, I think that there's a really big gap between the richest people in the, or in the country and the poorest people. Anissa Moreno says education funding is also top of mind for her, but there are other major issues that will be impacting her soon. Honestly, I also work about things like abortion rights, uh, minimum wage, things along those lines that are going to affect my future. For Eli Sells, it's a matter of equality. There's been a recent rollback of rights for LGBT people. So I feel like a lot of people's right to exist is on the ballot this year. And that's that's a scary reality. Connor Murray regrets the lack of moderation. Definitely the hyperpolarization of politics. I mean, you're either one side or the other. It doesn't seem like there's an in-between anymore. For Lane Waddell, thanks to social media, he believes his students are more aware than when he started teaching. The teacher's most important lesson in these times of political hyperpolarization? 
compromise. Yeah, I can be passionate about what I want, and you can be passionate about what you want, but unless we work together, neither one of us are getting anything. It's great we can differ, but at some point we've got to find common ground and move forward. And I think a lot of these kids want to do that. And that's a lesson we can all learn from. In Ahwatukee, Phil Latzman, KJZZ News. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Thanks for listening. In business news, imagine owning a home and being told you need to move and take your home with you. That's the experience for some residents across the valley as developers buy mobile home parks. From our business desk, Christina Estes reports on what's happening in Phoenix. As workers build apartments for Grand Canyon University students, Alanda Ruiz sits on her patio, worried about where her family will live. Very um, painful, you know, to read that letter. In April, Ruiz and other residents of Periwinkle Mobile Home Park received notice they had six months to move. While Ruiz and her husband own their home near 27th Avenue in Camelback, they don't own the land. GCU does, and the university wants to add more student housing. As we know it, they're a Christian university, right? They have not acted Christian in any way at all. After residents organized marches and caught the attention of a city council member and state senator, GCU extended the deadline twice. Now it's late May. In a statement, the university said it will provide $5,000 to each mobile homeowner to relocate. Residents who leave sooner will receive more, and those who stay until May won't have to pay $400 monthly rent. The Christian, we worship God the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. They worship Grant, Jefferson, and Jackson. Resident Jerry Souter doesn't like GCU's continued growth. They build all these buildings around here. I count it 26. Leave us alone. They don't need this one more building. Souter has spent 28 of his 83 years here, almost a decade living next to Ruiz, who earlier this year took him to the hospital when he suffered a heart attack. I lived in an apartment on Camelback. For five years, I didn't even know my next-door neighbor. I'd go out and say hi, you just walk away. They, they wouldn't say nothing. Here I know almost everybody in the park. We next move to item 52, which... In September, the Phoenix City Council unanimously approved nearly a million dollars for churches to provide emergency shelters for people experiencing homelessness. And Mayor Kate Gallego pointed out the city has committed more than $100 million to support housing and homeless services in the past three months. We're going to keep doing more, but um, I think it is important to recognize that this is an unprecedented level of commitment for the city of Phoenix. Just 40 minutes later, during public comment, the council heard this. What these residents need is an emergency response from the city. We do not think it is right to make us move when we do not have anywhere to move to. This is more than just a notice and get out. We are going to be homeless. In October, residents from Periwinkle, along with Las Casitas and Weldon Court Mobile Home Parks, protested outside council chambers. While inside, they addressed elected officials. We all have a family, and I have a son that's 14 years old. What am I supposed to tell him, that we have nowhere to go and that we have to go sleep in our truck? Over the past few years, leaders in Austin, Texas, Portland, Oregon, and Kenmore, Washington, have rezoned parks to make it harder for developers to close them and build other housing or commercial projects. In Colorado, property owners must give 12 months' notice when closing a park. 
and state law requires homeowners get the opportunity to buy it. Nineteen other states offer similar purchase laws, but not Arizona. What would I miss? My home. This is my home. Arizona residents like Alanda Ruiz are eligible for state assistance to relocate their mobile homes when development forces them out. But many homes, like Ruiz's, are too old for parks to accept because they don't meet code requirements. The state offers another option. She can abandon her home and collect about $2,000. I can't find anything. We're in a housing crisis. Everything's really either expensive or full or not available. Based on federal guidelines, 46% of Phoenix households are considered extremely low, very low, or low income. The council approved a housing initiative to create or preserve 50,000 units by 2030. As of Monday, Phoenix reported more than 25,000 have been created or preserved. That includes nearly 4,000 units for low-income households. What's not publicly tracked is the number of homes lost, like the 50 at Periwinkle Park. They have every right, every legal right, they do have every legal right, but it's immoral to move us. Phoenix City Manager Jeff Barton created a task force to research what can be done to preserve housing for some of the city's most vulnerable homeowners. The council is expected to discuss the findings this month. Christina Estes, KJZZ News, Phoenix. Now from KJZZ Original Productions. For something a little different, here's an audio snapshot from the show. Last Saturday, students and artists gathered at Scottsdale Community College to turn thousands of pounds of molten iron into art. From afar, participants looked like firefighters covered in helmets with face shields, safety goggles and gloves, as well as leather aprons, jackets, pants and shoe covers. It's important that every inch of skin is protected from stray embers and the nearly 2,050 degree molten iron. A line of caution tape kept friends, family members and forgery fanatics at a safe distance during the actual pouring. My name is Teddy Rand, and I teach sculpture here at Scottsdale Community College, and uh, we're having our annual iron pour. The iron pour is sort of the culmination of uh, uh, many weeks of work by the students and working on their patterns and making molds, and uh, we use a process uh, where we melt cast iron in a cupola furnace. Can I get a shovel over here, please? There's a, a handful of people that work on the furnace. Then there's what we call charge teams, and those people dump iron and coke into the furnace continuously throughout the whole pour. Then there's uh, what we call ladle teams, and those people actually will pick up the full ladles of cast iron and, under the direction of our mold directors, uh, pour them into molds. Back up, back up, back up, back up, back up. I always get a little giddy on an iron pour day. Come on, y'all, let's go! Hopefully everybody's pieces will turn out, because that's the point of all this. That was the fall 2022 Koji iron pour. Hours later, after the dust cleared and the iron cooled, molds were pulled apart to reveal various sculptures, pots, and even a large wheel. Next semester's pour will be held in the spring at ASU. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. In Fronteras News. A new report from the Human Trafficking Institute finds convicted sex trafficking defendants have not had to pay restitution to victims for years in Arizona. From our Fronteras desk in Tucson, Elisa Resnick has more. 
The report uses data from human trafficking prosecutions in all 50 states, four territories, and D.C. It breaks cases into two main categories, those related to sex trafficking and those related to forced labor. The data showed there was an overall decline in the total number of reported trafficking victims nationwide between 2020 and 2021, but forced labor cases were up by 20 percent. Arizona filed three criminal sex trafficking cases in federal court last year, according to the data, and convicted one defendant. The report found federal courts handling Arizona cases had not ordered a defendant to pay restitution to a victim since 2016. Alicia Resnick, KJZZ News, Tucson. And finally, in science news. Climate change is making the American West hotter and drier, shifting the timing and strength of moisture extremes. But research in the journal Nature Communications suggests beaver dams could more than offset the harmful effects of such changes on water quality. From our Arizona Science Desk, Nicholas Gerbis reports. Fluctuations between droughts and downpours reduce river contaminants by driving water into nearby soils for filtration. For example, nitrates that feed harmful algae growth are instead released by soil microbes as harmless nitrogen gas. When a beaver made itself at home at a study site on a key Colorado River tributary, researchers found that its dam caused the same helpful pressure gradient but in order of magnitude stronger and 44% more effective at filtration. Beavers are expected to expand their ranges under projected warming and drying conditions. Nicholas Gerbis, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this has been the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast, made possible in part by Helios Education Foundation and Alliance Bank, the Vitalist Health Foundation, the Intel Corporation and Beach Fleischman, the Arizona Community Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thank you for listening to KJZZ and for your generous support. I'm Tiara Vian, and this is KJZZ, your news and information station.